especially for leaders, it needs to be a story that's personal enough that it's, it's heartfelt. In other words, you can actually feel the person's intensity and, and engagement in the story themselves, as well as the felt sense of, oh my God, the universe just opened. Welcome to Messy and Magnificent, the place driven women come to elevate their career, health, and relationships. In here, we increase your productivity by replacing always being busy with the space to breathe. Hear your own wisdom and be part of a sisterhood that has your back. My name is Carly Fain, and together we're going to make sure that you have a doable plan and the roots to rise. Why, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Messy and Magnificent. It's your gal, Carly, over here. And I'm having a little bit of a chuckle to myself. And I'm just going to be real with you about why. So during this time of COVID, these episodes have been coming to you mostly live from my bedroom closet. So I'm literally hanging out next to my sweaters and my sneakers in this kind of makeshift scenario that we've done. And this is a testament to all the women out there who have these make it work kind of moments. So we have the real pleasure and joy of having Dr. Maria Sirwa come back on the podcast to do this really beautiful episode with us. And in addition to being fortunate that she's here on the show, she's also one of my dearest friends and colleagues. And so I forget sometimes in this world of Zoom where we're on the screen so often that I'm live here with Maria, that I'm not watching her give one of her TEDx talks or one of her international huge stage speaking events, that this is me live here with Maria because the stories and the concepts that she shared in the conversation that you're about to hear were so rich and transformative and transportive that I was taken to places within my own mental game that felt more expansive, more delighted. And I had to remind myself again and again, Carly, (laughs) this is live. You're right here with Maria. Now, here's how it all came about that we got to have Maria back on the episode. You might have caught that a couple weeks ago, we had a big milestone. We have over 10,000 listeners worldwide tuning into the show on a regular basis. And so we did a podcast pajama party. We invited you to come on over, hang out at my house from your house, and we gathered our wits and wisdom together as professional women. And we asked a question during that podcast pajama party that I would love to extend to you too. So please feel free to respond to this. We said, hey, what is a topic or a theme that you would love to have us cover next? What is something that would be really helpful if we could speak to it? And right away, somebody wrote in storytelling. (laughs) I want to learn more about the art of storytelling. And this is a concept that comes up on a pretty regular basis within my coaching practice, because we understand now as professionals that the ability to tell stories really helps to engage and inspire the folks that we want to motivate or be connected to in meaningful ways. And so Maria is the perfect person to catalyze this conversation here with us. Now, Dr. Maria Sirwa is a master teacher, facilitator, author, and speaker. And as a positive psychologist, she really focuses on the resilience of the human spirit, specifically when under pressure or during moments of significant transition. So we all need her and her work in our wheelhouse right now. And her work, it really builds capacity, meaning it expands our ability to know how capable we are. 
And it really calls engagement around difficult moments, using them, leveraging them to create these sustainable positive shifts in our abilities and the way we perceive the world. So as a speaker on the stage or in organizations worldwide, Maria has been called an order of great power and beauty. And I can second that. She also teaches this beautiful course called Driving the Narrative, Storytelling as a Leadership Competency. She does this in partnership with the Cooper Ryder Center for Appreciative Inquiry over at Champlain College each year. And it's going to come back this January. I get no kickback for saying this, but taking this course with Maria really elevated my ability to share stories confidently. Decades of experience has really allowed Maria to distill down the elements that make for an impactful story, one that creates engagement. So on this episode, she shares many insights, including the one specific element that needs to be in a story to allow it to land well with your audience. And she's also really candid about a few common mistakes people make that causes the audience to not engage so well with the story. So if you are like many women and you want to be able to share your voice effectively, but you hear thoughts like, how do I even begin to share my story? Which stories do I use? How do I cultivate it down? How do I get good at sharing it? How do I make sure that it lands well with other people? Well, this is definitely the episode for you. And speaking of our ability to unify together and strengthen each other, I want to give a quick shout out to Berkshire Listener, who just left a review for our podcast on iTunes. They said, women listening to women, five stars. What a treat. Each episode is full of richness and somehow, likely through Carly's unique genius, relates to other episodes. So I can enjoy a single episode, but over time, I listen and learn on a bigger landscape. The knowledge shared gets woven into a colorful, intricately patterned quilt, comforting and inspiring. Hey, Berkshire listener, I hope you recognize in this shout out that you are part of this colorful, intricately patterned quilt that you speak of and that every woman who leaves a review, who shares a post, who asks me a question, you are helping us all weave something strong and sturdy that acts both as a safety net as we step bravely into what's possible for us next professionally and a warm blanket on those days when we just need to wrap something around ourselves and recenter. Thank you for sharing your voice in this conversation. And hey, if you're listening and haven't left a review yet, I would love to give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. So hop on over to iTunes share what needs to be said, and you might get to hear your name and a loving shout out coming up shortly. Here we go. My conversation with Dr. Maria Sirwa. So Maria, you are the first person that I get to welcome back to Messy and Magnificent. Thank you for being here. Oh, I love being here. This has been the highlight of my weekend thinking of coming here today. (laughs) I think you and I have a a long-standing history of finding reasons to get to connect. Like, what project can we do now so that we would have a reason to work together? What's the next thing that would be fun to do together? Thank you for, for being here. So I was thinking about what a gift it was. Just last week, we had this podcast pajama party to celebrate, you know, the growing of the podcast. And you were there and we asked the folks there, hey, what's a theme or a topic you would love to see us do an episode on? And right away, somebody wrote in storytelling 
I want to learn more about the art of storytelling. And that, of course, is total serendipity as we're having you here on the show, somebody who lives and breathes the art of storytelling. So I was wondering if you would tell us, especially as it relates to the professional capacity, why does story matter? Through your lens, why does it matter? It matters because it enables us to cohere so many bits of information from so many domains, meaning the emotional domain, the intellectual, the collective, the unconscious, the conscious, the real and the imagined. So many domains get to be held in story and therefore its impact is multi-dimensional. So that, that's one piece of data from the leadership and storytelling world that I travel in. The other gorgeous outcome of, of being participating in either telling or receiving story is that it, it opens doors to possible different futures. You know, it creates the possibility of, oh, that's who I might become, or that's what's possible for us as a team. And if we can see it, as you know, through your work, if we can imagine it and see it, we can take the steps to get there. And so story at a time like this, particularly when the world is in upheaval and many of us are in some degree of suffering, if not for ourselves personally, but on behalf of others we care for, you know, the capacity to integrate stories of hope, stories of resilience, stories of turning the darkest night into that dawn, that dawning light are absolutely crucial. <laughs> Everything you just said landed so well with me. And let me see if I'm getting this right as you described two specific things. The first one sounded like it's an opportunity for unification, right? For connecting all these different fields of thought or different ways of viewing. So there's an opportunity for connection. And then as you talk about the second about envisioning, what could future look like? You know, there's the stories we already know because we've experienced them, but you're talking about something that seems to open or expand to what's possible yet, the best of what's yet to come. So what's an example of storytelling being used in a professional capacity? Well, one of the stories I've been telling recently is the story of Howard Schultz, who was the CEO and founder of Starbucks, who sort of steered the ship beautifully for so long and then retired. You know, he was a member of the board, but he retired as active CEO and then watched the company decline. And the decline he was most concerned about was the disintegration of what he believed to be the deepest values of Starbucks. And so he wrestles with himself and wrestles with his family for months about, ought I go back in? And it's, you know, you can imagine the sort of dark night of the soul, this beautiful thing I created has sort of turned sour. Is it my place to reenter? Is it my place to allow it to have its natural flow and rhythm? And he decides to go back in, reenters the company, but does so by inviting all the senior managers together around the globe for these three-day intensive sessions where they explore together what the mission of Starbucks might be at this time that would be life-giving, not just to Starbucks, but to the planet. And so the initial mission of Starbucks was something about, you know, the best ingredients and the best coffee and the best customer service everywhere. The new mission you know, which became integrated in about four years ago was, you know, to be sort of the, the keepers of goodness through the lens of coffee, to benefit community, benefit individuals and benefit the world through the connection with coffee. So maintaining excellence with ingredients, but broadening perspective to include 
a much larger sense of meaning and purpose. Okay, so I have a I have a follow up question for you, and this is going to be me admitting a, a nerdy fact about myself. But <laughs> for as long as I can remember, I have loved to watch people speak, and I'll get out a pen and paper sometimes. And you know, the the glory of the internet these days is that I can do it, and nobody has to know that I'm doing it. And I I look at why is this landing well with me? You know, what about the way they're speaking resonates with me that I might replicate in another fashion or that I could bring forth? And why might this not be landing? What about this presentation doesn't seem to work? And so I'd be curious if you'd be willing to share, Maria, why that particular story. So this great example of the leadership at Starbucks changing and the call to go back in. Why does that story work? What about the way that short story is shared helps it land with us? You know, Christopher Robichard is a professor at the Kennedy School of Government and the School of Public Policy at Harvard. And his niche, which I love, is the superhero niche. Like what superhero tales have to tell us about leadership? And he is, he is global. He's world famous. And he's this nerdy guy who was a nerdy kid who grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. And one of the most beautiful things he said is, in the world of Marvel universe of superhero tales, there is always a moment the protagonist must face the greatest moral crisis. Mm. And I think Howard Schultz represents perhaps maybe not the greatest moral crisis because the greatest moral crises really have to do with death and life and death. But underneath that has to do with why am I here and what is my purpose? And can I find a way to have that not just be about me, but be about something larger, right? And that the the dilemma of any conscious soul, if I can use that word of this time, is that very dilemma. Can it be more than just about me? I think, you know, the storytellers who are going to write Ruth Bader Ginsburg's story over and over and over again are going to find plenty of moments where she chose consciously to hold and discern until she could find the language or the perspective that could honor the moment, but honor the moment on behalf of the legacy. Oh, okay. So this is huge. <laughs> I'm putting something together because a question I often get, Maria, when, when I'm working with women who want to be able to share their story, whether it's in a personal or a professional capacity, there's oftentimes a big fear bubbles up of, am I going to sound like I'm just talking about myself? Is my story important enough? And is it going to sound like I'm just self-aggrandizing? I don't want to come off as a narcissist or somebody. And and so it sounds like what you're offering us here is that one of the, the elements that makes a story land so well is that there's some type of struggle and that the hero isn't necessarily us within the story, but that the, the, the hero is the way community is connected to it or that we're part of something bigger. So in order for a story to have impact, something has to change. It's either the moral code of the individual, it's either the vision of the team, it's either how everyone around the protagonist actually sees in a new way. Something has to change. And in impact stories, where especially for leaders, it needs to be a story that's personal enough that it's, it's heartfelt. In other words, you can actually feel the person's intensity and, and engagement in the story themselves as well as the felt sense of, oh my God, the universe just opened. Mm. Universe just opened. <laughs> so the shift was not only felt personally, but it was felt sort of globally or, or cosmically. You know, one of the most impactful stories I ever heard was a seven sentence story from a young man who had 
tried to kill himself a number of times and he was at a suicide prevention conference. And so he was communicating to families of people who had either tried to kill themselves or had succeeded and law enforcement and social workers. So people who were very deeply invested in creating a better world for people who felt on the edge of hopelessness. And his story went like this. By the time I was 24 years old, I tried to kill myself seven times using four different methods. And I'm here to talk to you today about what has helped keep me alive since I've stopped trying. Like that was it. Whoa, yeah. (laughs) And so the felt shift wasn't in him because he had already made the transition to someone wanting to survive. The felt shift was in the audience. Like it's possible to love someone who's tried four times and stay Mm. in there. Or it's possible for me who's tried three times to actually hang in there. Like there's something, a door just opened into hope. Oh, there it is. A door just opened opened into hope. There's the line. You, I've heard you say before something, and I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if I'm wrong, but something along the lines of, we all forget the PowerPoint slides, but we remember the story. Like we'll forget <laughs> the slides or the pamphlet or the brochure, but we'll remember the story. And why do you think that is? Because we could have just led with the statistics, right? With the example of Starbucks, Starbucks could have said, hey, we're looking at sales go down and thus we want to, you know, get everybody together and redo this. Why do you think that storytelling seems to be such a compelling way of gathering people around an idea or a concept versus the facts, the stats, the data? So some of it is literally the hardwiring, like the brain is hardwired to attend to only a certain amount of information, even though it's receiving literally millions of pieces of data every second. And the way the brain developed neurochemically was as the great receiver and integrator of data through story. Mm. And so there's a neurobiological aspect. It's actually where memory is held. Memory is held through story, right? So that's one layer. Then there's the tribal layer, which is that we come from lineages, no matter where we come from, we come from lineages of storytellers who passed on the traditions and the important teaching points, the lessons learned, wisdom gained through story. So no matter what, no matter where you look at any point in time on the globe throughout the centuries, and no matter what peoples you're looking at, developed indigenous peoples, cross-cultural collectives. It doesn't matter where you look. Every single one of them has a form of oral tradition. Mm. So it's tribal, it's neurobiological. And then if you layer in the fact of reality today, which is that in this tech-based world, we all know that at some point staring at a computer 27 hours a day for most of us is draining. (laughs) Yeah. But three minutes of a good story, it's like manna from heaven because we can feel it. We can receive it on multiple levels, the heart, the body, the bones, the soul, the mind, the spirit. We can receive it on so many levels. So where does a person even begin? And I know that that's a broad statement. (laughs) That's a huge general statement. But for somebody who's listening, who's feeling the call to share a story, in some capacity, what's a question that they might ask themselves to begin that inquiry? How do we even begin? So you want to ask a question that's about a defining moment. So think of a moment, a specific moment when you knew who you were, or think of a defining moment when 
you recognize that you had taken the wrong turn and you recalibrated. Or the moment when you woke up to your greatest strength. You know, so we want to think in terms of moments and then gather as much information around that moment as possible. And then, then it's a matter of shaping the story. It's practicing, telling the story, practicing, getting it right, having a good opening line, a good closing line, you know, an invitation in the middle of there, like join me on this journey kind of thing. What I love about you is how authentic you are about how important practice is. Like you are the queen of practicing, being very clear of, oh, if this story sounds good, it's because I told it 200 times in my, in my mirror, in my bathroom, right? Like that we, that we actually practice the story and that there's an art to going through it. You're reminding me something that's quite poignant just today over lunch. I have an, an uncle who's in his final stages of life. And I was sitting with my mom and we were beginning to draft his obituary. And my uncle is, he definitely does not fit into any neat box, you know. And the first draft of the obituary was, well, here's the places he's worked. And it really read like a resume. It was like he worked here and then he did this. And, it's, and that's all well and good. But we're sitting there and we're trying to think of how do we, in 300 words, because that's the, the print allowance in this particular newspaper, in 300 words or less, how do we encapsulate the spirit of Uncle Dean, right? And we remembered this story when he was just a child, three or four years old, he had a toy car. And my grandmother, you know, turned her attention to my mother, who was the baby at the time, for two minutes and the next thing you know, she got a phone call from somebody down the street because he had driven his toy car on the road to the center of town. Right? And it was a small enough town that everybody recognized, oh, there's Dean again, right, on his driving his car. And that's how he lived his life. Right. Like and I didn't think about it through this lens, Maria. You're helping me articulate. And this will be particularly relevant as we hone this obituary, but articulate that that was a defining in a playful way, a moment for him, that that would be who he always was. He was always breaking the rules. <laughs> he was always outside the box and always embraced by the community that supported him. He lived there his whole life. That defining moment is such a beautiful way of starting the inquiry of what matters. And because we know that there'll be meaning there if it's around a defining moment. And so for the, the women you coach or those who come to your, listen to this podcast who are seeking to serve forward their gifts and their talents um, in the world, you know, a great question is what was the moment when you knew you were ready to lead? And that could lead the company or lead the enterprise, but it could also be lead your life. Stop spectating and inhabit your life and lead your life. What was that moment? I had a dream in my I had just started therapy when I was 24. And somewhere in that first year, I had this vivid dream where I was, I grew up in upstate New York and I was at the New York Giants football stadium. I don't even know what it was called at the time, but I, I was actually in the very, in the nosebleed seats at the very, 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 very top row. And I saw the game going on, but they looked like tiny ants. I was so far away. And it took about two seconds in the midst of therapy to get it. Oh, I was watching my own life. And I was so far away from my own living, I couldn't impact the play. How could I get down to the field of my own life and start calling some of the plays, right? <laughs> right, right. When did I begin to lead? And this speaks to what you, what you brought up very early on in this conversation was is the opening doors to possibility. Because we, just asking that question is empowering, it is enlivening, and it's also it doubles down on our commitment to continue leading. I began to lead because of this reason or because this happened or this call to action. And I'm continuing to lead because. 
And often right. the first step toward leadership is the recognition that you are not leading, that you are, you have actually followed and you're probably not following the right people. It's the Pied Piper thing. Like, Ooh, why was I listening to that music for that long? And how did I stay at that party too long? And what, what did I see in that person? You know, <laughs> you know, it's wild that you, you say this just last week, we had a new private client join our practice and she runs a wonderful company in New York City and she has a team of about 18 people and she was mentioning that she's a natural born leader for as long as she could remember, you know, in fourth and fifth grade when they would have to do group assignments, she would, you know, make herself the boss and would begin to delegate and that's her joyous spot. She loves that spot. And we're talking about how she has to lead this team and they really depend on her. And as she's talking, she's having this realization of I'm exhausted. I'm entirely spent. I'm supporting 18 people every single day. If I leave for a vacation, I come back. Everything's in shambles. They can't actually run without me. And it occurs to her, I'm not leading. I'm doing what I've seen every other person in a similar role as me do, which is work themselves into the ground and not learn how to delegate. There's actually not leadership in what I'm doing. And I'm ready for that. I'm ready to actually pioneer a new way of running this business such that it gives us all life, not just the employees, but everybody who's who's impacted. And so this question, you're good, Maria. This is what Maria does. She plants these seeds and then they bloom because this question is the beginning, it feels like, of what could be a lifetime of answers. Sure. So here's a funny, here's a funny question. What in your experience has you seen not work in the telling of a story? Are there certain practices that generally don't land well that we could try to keep an eye out for when we're crafting a story? If you've made yourself the the hero or the heroine of the story to everyone else's expense, mm. like sometimes we do rise in our own stories, right? We don't always tell stories of brokenness. Sometimes we do tell stories of courage and of of wisdom and of goodness, right? And so we rise, but that rising has to be in the service of something larger on behalf of something larger. So when people worry about being self-centered in their stories, it's because they haven't gone to the next step to think about what is the real impact of the story and what it, what will its impact be on their listeners? Do I want the listeners to just applaud mm-hmm. me or do I want them to actually feel transformed? And it's, it's taking it to that step that that's crucial. Um, the other classic mistake people make is they think a story needs to be a thousand million words and 10 minutes <laughs> long and tell every, every detail, you know, the color of the eyeshadow they had on that day. You know, like, unless you're talking about how you donated your eye to a four-year-old who had lost her eyes, we don't need to know the color of your eyeshadow problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the example you gave of the seven-sentence story. Right. And how deeply impactful that is. And I'm guessing, I'm making up, I know for me anyway, to craft a seven-sentence story, which probably start with seven pages and then fierce editing and fierce editing and fierce editing until it distilled down. But this idea that getting clear about the purpose of the story and making sure that there's not too many details. And then probably the most common mistake people make is they tell themselves one of two things. They either tell themselves, I'm never going to be a good storyteller. And so they don't practice. Or they tell themselves, I'm a natural storyteller, and so I don't need to practice. And so they don't practice. And what happens is they get up to tell the story, and they lose the punchline, or they get derailed, or they, they can't remember why they started in the first place. Like, and they just, they start, so then they just start talking, and it stops being a story. It starts being just, you know, brainstorming in the moment. And so, it, yeah, if I could 
if I could pay people to practice, I would. <laughs> well, and, and so what does practice look like for you these days? If you're practicing a story, like what's your technique? What do you do? I sometimes, if it's a brand new story, I'll write it out or I'll write out the key points and then I'll literally pace. I pace with the paper and I say it until I, until, and what starts to happen about the 17th time is that new language starts to emerge or I know where to pause and where to speed up, you know, like I'll, I'll start my own <laughs> rhythms will come into play. Like the muse will sort of get involved. Some stories are too complicated and I, I, it takes, I put them away in a couple of years. I can go back to them because somehow I've changed mm. or the story impact has changed from my new perspective. And so I can shift it differently. Um, but it, I pace and I say it out loud and it's always driving toward impact. Like what is the felt impact I want in the room? I, so as you describe that, it's kind of you're starting with the end result. When people walk away or when people sit in the presence of the story, how do I want them to feel? And then it's almost, you know, then we're going backwards to make sure that we touch on the elements that will lead to that. But you're starting with, with the end feeling when you say impact. There's this gorgeous research from Duarte and Sanchez at Harvard who looked at the most impactful talks, presentations. And some of those are stories and some of those are speeches like Martin Luther King and so on. And what they learned is that the most impactful speeches throughout history, and this is not just the West, this is the West and the East and the North and the South, they started at a certain place and then they described the struggle or the climb and then the fall from grace and then the climb and the struggle, but they always end higher. So in a, in a either more visionary or a more positive or more hopeful place. And I think if you're striving for impact where you want engagement, where you want motivation, where you want hope where you want inspiration, then you've got to end a little higher. It can't just be a story of how screwed up everything is and how miserable we've all been together. And what are we going to do now? Kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think if, you know, um, when An Inconvenient Truth came out, the first one, and there was a lot of backlash because it was, there was some great research and some great conversations about, you know, the need to take care of our planet, but it was kind of, we're kind of left hanging. Like, And now here it is like, and there was this sense of, oh my gosh, we're all, we're in dire straits. What are we going to do? And then, you know, years later, the second part came out, which is okay. And here's what we're going to do about it. But I think you're speaking to that of we, there's got to be movement. There's got to be movement within the story. It's got to take us someplace. Greta Thunberg, the um, young climate change activist did something brilliant in her Ted talk was 2017 or 2018 she hit the mark, the 15 minute mark in the 18 minute talk. And she stopped and she goes, now this is the point that most speakers start talking about hope or tell you a story of hope. She goes, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Because if positive, I love this phrase, if positive pep talking would have made a difference to the world, it would have happened by now. She said, so if you want hope, you must take action. Through action, Mm. you will experience hope. And she was brilliantly, perfectly, beautifully right. So even then, if you want to cultivate hope of any kind, whether it's a company-based hope or inside the family-based hope or for an individual, you have to enable them to feel capable of action or, or somehow the story may even will have outlined a potential next step. Oh, I love that. So you're either articulating what the next step is or you're giving them the chutzpah, the umph, the gumption to believe in themselves that they can discover and live into the next step. Right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, there was a meme that someone sent around. It's just a black background with the white crocheted 
justice robe she used to collar she used to wear on her robe and then it just simply said vote and tell them Ruth sent you Mm. like what do you do with this pain and suffering of the loss of such a heroine you go vote that's what you do you continue her legacy by voting right so that's just a tiny little example of how you know we can through story illuminate what is the next steps that are possible but it, it may not, story doesn't have to do that. It can just simply illuminate the capacity of a person to endure and endure well and transform. Okay. So since we're talking about transforming and the next steps, bear with me. I would love to talk about what you're working on next, this project that you feel called to. So Maria, you have initiated this project called What to Remember. Would you tell us a little bit about what that is? So at one level, it's a prose poem reflection kind of series in which I have written these little five or six sentence prose poems and then reflect on the theme of the poem as a sort of offering to the to the general conversation about what's important and what's not. You know, what do we need to hold on to and what can we forget about? So that's the sort of the one layer, the obvious layer. And I am so deliciously happy that you Carly have chosen to be with me on this journey and help co-create the experience and the series. The deeper layer is, you know, as a young woman in my 20s, I was, I would often go somewhere with a notebook and a pen to write. And I would sit in these beautiful little tranquil spaces around Boston and, and there was nothing came. <laughs> I, had, I had all the longing in the world and I had language, but I didn't have language connected to any kind of lived experience or lived wisdom. Uh, the themes mm-hmm. that I was wanting to talk about I, were bigger than me at the time. And so here we are for almost 40 years later, and I do feel a call to actually name what I have learned and what I'm hopeful for. For others along the way. You know, there's one reflection about what we don't have to take on from our parents, right? And there's another reflection yeah. about you remembering that you were the one who called the lioness, you know, it's time to let her in kind of thing about courage. So they are an invitation and an offering. Uh, it'll be a free series, an offering into hopefully that same impulse that story offers us, which is that, you know, can, can language cultivate or inspire, catalyze is the better word, can language catalyze an action that is life-giving? So what's it like for you to be in the process of about to launch this entirely new sharing in the world? You know, somebody you have been in your particular career set and are a master at what you do. I mean, you teach the art of transformative teaching. You teach the art of professional storytelling. And now there's this this new thing emerging. And I say new in that it's publicly new. (laughs) This is something that clearly has been cultivating within you since you were 20. What is it like to be in the process of bringing something new into the world right now? Well, I will tell you a secret, which is that I finally figured out to take my own best advice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Most of the teaching I do in the world is around this, the theme of resilience. And one of the things that we know about tremendously resilient people is they don't try to do it alone. And so I think I am excited and I feel safe because I've surrounded myself with you 
and Ellen Boyd and my beautiful daughter, Rafaela Kramer. And together as a pod or a tribe or, a, you know, a, a kinship branch, we're doing this together. So I feel like it, even if the world isn't interested, we've created a life raft and we're on the life raft together. And so actually through this process, one of the greatest teachings in resilience has come home to land, which is that not only do we not have to do this thing alone, we ought not do it alone. And even more wisely, we should choose the people we want to be on the life raft with. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we're not just opening up the doors for any Joe, Dick and Harry, right? That we're actually being intentional about who's on the life raft. So let's use our little group here, our group of four people here. What's the criteria for being on the life raft with you? And, and not even in terms of what to remember. But in terms of, of the life raft in general, of where you find yourself now poised for a special birthday coming up here, who gets a seat on the life raft? Yeah. What qualities do the people on the raft embody these days? Yeah, I guess the spirit of internal adventure, kindness is crucial, willingness to share, um, willingness to lead and to serve and to serve and to lead. And a kind of playfulness, like who knows, mm. who knows what this is going to look like or what's going to work or if anybody's going to click the link, like who knows? And let's do our best job anyway. So I think kindness, courage, adventure, creativity. But, you know, I think it's really the people when I wake up in the morning, I don't know about you, Carly. I mean, Zoom world, God bless Zoom. And oh my God, Zoom. Um, both both yes it's like who do I wake up in the morning being excited about having on my zoom list you know (sighs) Llewellyn and Rafaela that's one raft I mean I have other rafts in my life but for this creative project like yes I get to be on the raft today with them you know there's somebody I forget it is somebody who's famous who talked about how if they wouldn't go out and grab a beer with somebody, then they wouldn't take them on as a working partner, right? right? Like if it's not somebody that I would want to hang out with at the end of the day and talk about the ways of life, then it's probably not somebody that I would want to bring into my professional practice. And I love your your lifeboat metaphor. And I just want to say for anybody listening that if you want to experience the sense of playfulness, the internal adventure, the sense of being on a raft with somebody make sure that you get access to what to remember. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes. The interesting part about getting to work on this project with you, Maria, is how deeply fulfilled I am by every single piece of prose that you share with us. And so it's not full altruism and it doesn't need to be because I'm delighted to bring it to the world and the richness that I get every time that you and I talk and every time that we work on what to remember is so It is so filling. It is so satiating. It is so connecting simultaneously to each other and to this global community, but also back home to myself. I drop in when you drop in. Um, And for that, I'm really grateful. So we'll make sure that we put a link to that in the show notes wherever you're listening to this so that you can get free access. This is a legacy project for Maria. This is something that you were doing as a gift and an offering in an incredibly generous way. So thank you. And I think, you know, just to go back to that, I think our story is an important one for women, no matter the age, because you and I met a bunch of time ago, like (laughs) 10, 15 years ago, something like that. Yep. We had a positive, really positive connection and wanted to work together. And then you did something 
that people <laughs> of your age do, which is you got up and left and went to California <laughs> and then went globetrotting. And all the while, I'd be like, where's Carly? What happened to Carly? Why can't I find Carly? And so for years, we were not in touch, except maybe once or twice a year on Facebook or something. And then when you landed back again, sort of in country, and here's the lesson for me and hopefully for others, is if you have found someone that you want to be on the life raft with and they, you know, they travel to a distant ocean for a while, don't lose track. Mm. Bring them back because... Life is often, not for all of us, but for many of us, long enough that we can find ourselves again. And God, it's precious. So your wisdom, your light, your clarity, your courage, and your kind, brave spirit have always been compelling to me. And so what a fool I would have been to let that go just because you were traipsing around the world. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. The depth of my... My gratitude for you keeping a light on for me is immense. Yeah, Maria's talking about the number of years that I spent as the live-in coach to all these famous folks and, and how spectacular that was and how, um, how easy it was for me to lose anything that was mine in that process because I was on call, a very literal 24-7, and I was watching these different elements of who I was. And so here's a moment of reckoning, a moment when I realized I needed to reclaim who I was, Maria. I was in the grocery store checkout line. I was doing the thing where I'm balancing my phone on my shoulder while I'm trying to swipe my credit card. And the woman who was checking me out asked me a question. And I've always really judged people who are on their phone when another human being is trying to interact with them. It just feels to me like the opposites of presence. And I really appreciate presence. And so here I am doing that. I'm doing the thing that I judge. And I heard in my own head the thing I had been saying for years, which is, well, this is not who I am. This is just temporary. This is just a temporary situation. And I heard it for, I don't know, the hundredth time or whatever, whatever number of time it was. And in that moment, I hit me in my gut of how many years are you going to give yourself to call this temporary? What is temporary? And this was a moment of Are we going to just adapt that this is the life and that's okay and this is the choice and this is the pace at which you're going to operate and the ability you're going to have for presence? Or are you going to need to make some really difficult decisions here in order to come back home to what you value? And that was not an overnight easy like, oh, now I've got it (laughs) and I'm going back to what I value. It was this, this gentle reintegration and the fact that you were willing to meet me on a park bench you were the first person I saw when I came back to civilization and <laughs> we met on the park bench, you know, in, in Lenox, Massachusetts. And you asked the question, what would be fun for us to do next? Thank you for keeping the raft for when I was able to be there. My gratitude is, is so deep, so deep. So here's a funny question. Who doesn't get to come on the raft these days? And I don't mean like like specific people, but like what are certain elements that, geez, Louise, if we could go back to when you were sitting at a pond at 24, trying to write things out, what would have been helpful to know that it's okay not to bring these elements on the raft? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, people who are much more invested in being a victim than in shaping their lives. People who live life kind of lukewarm, passively, like, oh, yeah, meh. you know, like I'm holding in, the I'm holding meh, in the whole meh thing. And I think people who consciously or unconsciously um, continue to cause harm 
even when evidence has present, been presented to them. So that was important. I think what you just said, consciously or unconsciously, that at some place intent doesn't necessarily matter. No, I often say intent matters until you're about five. It's kindergarten. When you're four, when you're four and you say, mommy, I didn't mean to drop the glass. Absolutely. But once you're in kindergarten and you start participating in the social contract of consequences, then intention is important, but not enough. Oh, intention is important, but not enough. I didn't mean to steal Bobby's lunchbox. I understand that. And there are consequences, you know, so yeah. Maria, thank you. I am so appreciative. All like everything you say could be its own standalone bite for that I could just sink into deeply. But before you go, would you be willing to be the first person to do the two-way Q&A a second time? Because I'm so curious to see if your answers have changed. I'm sure they have. Anyway, <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah, because we change, right? Because we change. All right, so here's, here's how it works. We're going to ask you two questions. And right in the middle, we're going to give you an opportunity to ask a woman listening a question. So it's a two-way experience here. So my first question to you is, if you came with a warning label, what might it read? Oh, right. Yeah, it was She Runs Deep, right? Yes. Yeah. I think that's still it. She Runs Deep. These are not shallow waters. It helps to have a life raft when you run deep. <laughs> yeah. So what's a question based on our conversation that you would love to ask a woman listening right now? What's the story you most want to leave for the people who are to come after you? What is the story you most want to leave for the people who will come after you? We really do want to hear the answer to that. So put it on a review on iTunes or put it on social media, or if it's personal, send it in a private message. We'll put our contact info in these show notes because we would love to be in that conversation with you. All right, Maria, our last question today is, what is one thing that even if other people disagree, you know to be true? Hope is everywhere. The evidence is everywhere. We just have to have the eyes to see. Thank you for being here, Maria, and everybody who wants more of this in your life. Make sure that you sign up for What to Remember, and we keep this conversation going. Oh, yay. Thank you, Carly. Well, I don't know about you, but I am so glad that this conversation with Maria was recorded because I'm definitely going to go back and listen to a few key segments more than one time. Wherever Maria goes, there is richness and wisdom an invitation to see the best of what's possible for us next. So if you heard us mention her new program, What to Remember, this is an entirely free online offering that she's doing. You can head on over to mariasirwaprograms.com or go to exactly where you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, I'll put a link to it and you can sign up for free access to her What to Remember offering. You're going to get one beautiful, inspiring piece of written prose that's in a video format with her. They're short and they are more than sweet. They are this call back to knowing your own sense of fierce belonging. You will feel wrapped up in the arms of her powerful community. So there's nothing for sale with that. This is her legacy work. And I would love for you to be a part of knowing Maria as well as I do now. Remember that question that Maria asked? We really do want to know the answer. She said, what's the story you most want to leave for the people who are to come after you? Leave that in a review on iTunes or on Instagram or Facebook and tag me in it 
so we can keep this conversation going. Remember, you thrive through nourishment, not punishment. Keep taking care of what you value, including your own inspiring story of when you decided to take leadership in your life. And I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Messy and Magnificent podcast and being part of this dynamic, life-giving community of women. I consider each episode part of a lifelong conversation of you and me hanging out, sipping tea together, making sure that all women become richer, more nourished, and able to keep on rising. So I'll see you on the next episode next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to head over to carlyfane.com forward slash podcast to get the full show notes. And I've also got some extra special free resources for driven women over there that you won't find anywhere else. 